Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made, a new CityWire podcast hosted by me, Alex Steger. Oh, and me, Frank Talbot. Brilliant. This is this is, this is episode one. The listeners are going to be so impressed for the first ten seconds. <laughs> Alex speaking here. I am CityWire's editor in the mighty US of A and are recording this from an impossibly small apartment in New York City. Uh, well, I am CityWire's head of investment research and I'm recording this from a fortunately slightly less confined quarters in the county of Kent in the UK. In many ways, this is what the world needs. After the trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic, two posh white men children recording a podcast about investments. Nature really is healing. The name of the game here is Mistakes Were Made, uh, and the premise is that we're going to get people to confess to some of their biggest ever investment mistakes, uh, be that professional or personal. We think this is important, you know, because I think there's real truth to the notion that you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do for your victories. And some of these people, you know, may not be used to talking about it, but you learn a lot more about them as well. There's a great Mandela quote that goes, I never lose, I either win or learn. Uh, and the hope is that we will too, by osmosis, learn that is, and uh, and try to make slightly less egregious errors. Yeah, I think I think that's the crux of it, isn't it? It's you know we're never not going to make mistakes, but perhaps we can you know fail better, as Samuel Beckett and some Silicon Silicon Valley tech bros might say. And we're trying to hear from a range of investors on this, you know, from from people who maybe work in the fields like uh, behavioural psychology, from those in fund selection, fund management, financial advice, to get a real array of um, investment views, but, all, but also mistakes. And actually, I think what we've learned from this is actually a lot of, a lot of the errors are very similar. And therefore, hopefully the lessons are, are pretty universal. So we're, we're kicking off the, the season, the series with Daniel Crosby, who's a New York Times bestselling author of books such as The Laws of Wealth, and the behavioural investor. Yeah, he's um, a psychologist by training and uh, day to day he is the chief behavioural officer at a firm called Brinker Capital, which is a large wealth and asset manager based just outside Philadelphia in the US of A. Yeah, Daniel's a very nice guy uh, and has previously spoken, uh, he is a nice guy, I'm being honest, he's previously spoken at CityWire events, uh, if you remember what those were like. Also, stick around after the interview with Daniel as you hear more, you know, gold from the likes of Frank and I. We will sort of discuss the main things that we learned from our conversation with Daniel. And of course, this is a, a financial podcast, so there will be some plugs, some product pushing at the end. But on to our conversation with Daniel, which we began as we always do, by asking our guests about their worst investment decisions. You know, if you had asked me pre-COVID, you know, I've been asked this question before, and pre-COVID, my answer was, I bought too much house. Like, you know, I live in the American South, uh, real estate is fairly inexpensive, it's easy to get a big house, but it's also a lot of upkeep. Uh, now I take it all back, I want every square foot of this big house I have used every square foot of it and it's been a lovely place to get stuck. So that was my that was my previous worst uh, financial mistake that I now is the best thing I ever did. So everyone can point to the long game here. Everyone can yeah, say no, I, had, had I known uh, had I known there would be a global pandemic and I'd be stuck in my house, I would have bought twice the house I did. Yeah. 
I had I known I wouldn't have gone for the the two bedroom apartment in New York <laughs> and right. and stayed with it. Exactly. So so if I had to say now, so I'm a psychologist by education. So when I studied, I didn't study a thing a, a, about finance and knew very little about it. I had one client I was working with in financial services. I quite liked the people. I thought the work was interesting. And so I started to educate myself about uh, how markets worked. And the thing that happened to me was that I became just educated enough to be dangerous, right? I, I read up on valuations and I read up on, on historical market trends and cyclical 10-year valuations and, and how they forecast future trends. And so this is in like probably 2012 when I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, the, the market is, is bubbly. Right, the market is bubbly. Like this is we're we're at an extreme valuation here, and I've got to get out. And so I went all to cash. Right, did the did the very thing that I tell people not to do because I knew at the time sort of just enough to be dangerous. And I think you know, it, knowing what I know now, of course the market's done nothing but go up for for nine years since that time and i've been back in for for a considerable amount of time but there were years there were years where i missed the good that the market had for me and my portfolio uh because i was sort of too too clever by half it's funny you say that i in a way it's reassuring but i've made a very similar yeah i've been in cash for for way for for, for various periods for way too long entirely for the same reasons i'm like well this looks no this looks too much and then I, every time i think about moving back in i think well, no, surely now is the worst time to do it and um and 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 yet another rally goes past with me um on the side but it it really is an occupational hazard for for people like you and i because we have to have an opinion right we have to follow markets enough to be able to to comment sensibly on what's going on and a danger of swimming in those waters is that you, you know, you read the articles and there's always some bad news article. You know, we know from the behavioral finance literature that bad news is about two and a half times as engaging as good news is. And so there, from, from a very sort of practical perspective, there's always going to be some bad news that's top of mind. Uh, and, and you and I have to sort of immerse ourselves in that somewhat, and you have to learn to to sort of rise above it where the average person can just go blissfully on about their day, uh, you know, unaware of the, the bearish news of the day. You, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but I, but I, I suppose to make it explicit, what, what did you learn from that? What, was it just about sort of that you, that was it, was it that point of, you have a dangerous amount of knowledge or did, were there other sort of lessons that you took from <laughs> being on the sidelines when you shouldn't have been? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of lessons that I learned. I, you know, I think people have sort of different faiths when it comes to managing money and the sort of the faith tradition, if you will, that spoke to me was sort of old school cigar butt value investing, Warren Buffett, Ben Graham stuff when I was first learning about these things. And I had a very simplistic understanding of this, like, oh, you just you just wait till stuff is sort of outrageously cheap and then you bet the farm. Well, uh, you know, years and years will, will will go by when when nothing's outrageously cheap. And that doesn't mean that that markets won't continue to rise. 
you learn about the disconnect between the market and the economy. I, I've learned humility. Uh, I've learned to be intellectually curious, but to, but to also have a process that that frees you from regret. To just get in the process of contributing a little bit each month to free yourself from from the regret of trying to go all in or all out. Uh, not something I knew at the time, but I've been I've been appropriately humbled by by the market. So does that mean that you've uh, bought some Bitcoin? <laughs> That, that does not mean that I have bought Bitcoin. I am I'm Bitcoin curious. I've I you know I have my own podcast and I've I've interviewed a number of, of Bitcoin enthusiasts and crypto enthusiasts. Um, I'm interested in it. I I cannot say that I've pulled the trigger yet though. And so, here here come the have fun staying poor comments for me. I guess. No, just just living on the sidelines is is tough when it's fifty percent up in uh, yeah. less than two weeks. Yeah, it's tough. On, on that note, actually, I mean, there's this kind of um, segues nicely, I think. I wanted to, you know, you've obviously written and, and, and spoken a lot about, you know, uh, people investing sort of, you know, being led by their emotions. And okay, so so it can be a bad decision to sit on the sidelines. It can also be a really bad decision to uh, just join the crowd because, because you're reading a lot about it. And I think... Um, we see that a lot anyway, but 2020 slash 2021, we should just invent a new word for that year because it's all, it's like, a, it's a, it's one, it's one year now, isn't it? They're not really different. Um, but we've seen that sort of on steroids, haven't we? With, um, I mean, most recently, obviously the, the GameStop AMC stuff and the, the meme stocks, Bitcoin maybe, although maybe it's more complicated than that. Um, has anything, do you, do you think, has anything changed this year or the last year and a half behaviorally or are we just... Uh, are we just more aware of it? And, you know, has basically has investor, is investor behavior at its worst ever, right, <laughs> right now? So, I think there's a couple of things. Some of them are as old as, as human nature itself, right? I mean, some of the the AMC, um, AMC GameStop stuff, I mean, that's just classic, right? Feeding frenzy mania market bubbles, right? That's been around for, for hundreds of years. It'll be around hundreds of years hence. And then you, you throw the pandemic on top of it, right? Um, this is unprecedented. We, we were lonely before this. You know, the UK and Japan in 2018 created ministries of loneliness because their, their citizenry was so lonely that it was having dramatic health impacts. In the US, half of people say they're lonely. And in the US, we've studied the, the impact of social isolation on people it's equivalent to being twice as damaging as obesity. It's the equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Like social isolation is terrible for people. And so when we see that there's a group of upstart, you know, uh, upstart young investors who are trying to stick it to the man, like that was a narrative, right? That was a, that was a form of social cohesion that was very alluring to a lot of people at a time when people were profoundly, profoundly social, socially disconnected that offered the, you know, the, the feeling of connection. So I think you've got old school investor behavior, you've got real time updates via technology, and you've got a lonely populace it was sort of the perfect storm. So I just want to go back to something there. So you're saying if I have loads of friends, and I'm not lonely, I could maybe take up smoking and I'd be net net kind of you situation. Could, you could eat a lot of potato chips and start smoking and no but when but they I need, <laughs> but i need to have friends oh it's tough isn't it what do i want more 
Oh. No, but when when they study longevity, I mean, there's there's lots of places like Italy, right? There's there's parts of Italy where people sit around and and you know the the prevalence of smoking is enormously high. You know, they're of course eating cheese and pasta all day, uh, delicious bread, right? And people are people are not in great health in many respects, and yet they live long lives because there's an enormous amount of of, of social connectedness. And so uh, offsetting fouls, you know, pick up, uh, pick up an overeating and a smoking habit and, but just keep those friends close. Sweet. Okay. That's, that's, that's a new goal, I think for this year for me, although I know you don't believe I've read some stuff. You're like, don't, don't really set goals and don't do them annually. But um, Frank, did you want to come in on anything here? Yeah, actually, what, what was your most recent investment decision? Why did you make it? Because I, I, the reason I ask is because I've heard that you, you like to get in the, the right mood to make a decision. You've got to be calm, thinking clearly, no emotional response. Um, so how did you get in the mood? And then what did you make? Frank, I'm, I'm married, Frank. And this is not... <laughs> no, um, I, my latest investment was the one that I make every month. I mean, I just... I invest in in sort of a diversified basket of, of of different asset classes. It's it's a decidedly unsexy event. You know, it's just something I do every two weeks. Uh, and so uh, for me, it's you know, it's it's muscle memory at this point. It's just reflexive. It's it's what I do uh, every payday. And so my my latest investment was like my last investment and the ten before it, and not not much to write home about. But 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 a good way to keep me out of my own way. And does that does that transcend to buying stuff on Amazon? I've been reading that a lot of people, uh, what's it called? Emotional spending during the pandemic is well up. People oh. just getting that dopamine hit of just firing something towards Amazon. Now that I'm terrible about. Uh, the, thing that, the thing that's going to fill the hole in my heart uh, most recently is the 1950s gold top Les Paul guitar I just ordered. So that's that's the thing that's going to make me happy this month. We got my fingers crossed that this this is the thing that's finally going to do it. For listeners out there, there are a fair few guitars on the wall behind him. <laughs> and Frank, have you have you not also made some quite bad uh, COVID purchases recently? Uh, not so much. I mean, I've got a young kid, so we, we've been buying stuff that possibly we don't need, like the sterilizer that has never once been used, apart from to test out that it was working. Um, <laughs> I was thinking more, you, you mentioned to me there's a golf club that you might have bought recently. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so I bought a golf club because it, it was on discount. And golf courses have been closed in England for virtually the entire year. So I haven't had much time to use it. But it was nice and shiny and it was cheap. It's a, va it's a value play. It's, it will come back. And Daniel, I guess, you know, we, we touched on this a bit already, but you know, are there things that people can do? Um, you know, you, you, Frank mentioned it there somewhat suggestively about, you know, you getting in the mood. Um, but are there things that people can do to sort of counteract sort of behavioral, but natural behavioral biases when, when making investment decisions? Are there ways, psychological ticks that you can be aware of uh, that you could try to control or um, stop yourself or, you know? Yeah. So I, I think the two biggest things that people can do are, are automate their process uh, and work work with a professional. I you know those are the two those are the two best things that they can do. Uh, for most people, automating the process is just just beats everything else, because when you look at the research on willpower and discretionary decision making, 
uh, we have sort of a finite reserve of willpower and it's it's easily used up i think especially at a time like right now when so much other stuff is going wrong and we're you know we're trying to trying to hold it together and so what what we see is that people who are exercising willpower in one area tend to let it slip in another and so rather than trying to white knuckle your way to to good investing i think it's good the best thing you can do is just just set a good process in place and automate it so that it just sort of occurs beneath your awareness and you don't you don't have the propensity to get in there and screw yourself up uh, the second thing you can do is is to work with a you know work with a professional uh, work with a professional who can kind of guide guide you through the process and, and keep you on on the straight and narrow path uh, the the third thing i would say is that uh, emotion is the enemy, you know, Frank, Frank alluded to this, emotion is the enemy of, of sound decision-making of, of all sorts. So if you're excited about an investment idea, it is almost necessarily stupid. Um, if you are scared, you know, if you, if you are scared about your investments, you're, you're probably be being foolish as well. So, I mean, you know, kind of like I talked about with my, my bi-weekly purchases, I mean, the best investment decisions don't raise your don't raise your heart rate one bit. And there's a lot of people right now making really emotionally led decisions. Some people are getting super rich on it. Uh, many more people are left holding the bag and, and are going to be very poor on it because getting rich quick and getting poor quick are are sides of the same coin. That makes perfect sense. And we write a lot of a lot of what City Wide does is writing for um well, all of it is right for sort of professional investors, but a big part of that audience is, I suppose, uh, what we call sort of fund selectors, fund buyers. So maybe they're not necessarily sort of client-facing advisors, but they're people who uh, put together buy lists or put together model portfolios and things. And I'd be interested in in your views, if you have any, on kind of common mistakes when, when picking a fund manager. I, I think, re respectfully, I think one of the things that sort of the institutional, you know, uh, fund managers do is they don't understand that they're people too. I think there can be this, this um, misapprehension of how we are just as prone to behavioral bias as the next person. You know, indeed, you and I who work in the industry, we've sort of been out with some of our stupid investment decisions we've made. And, and people who are professionals are prone to all the same things as, as retail investors, and sometimes may lack the humility uh, to understand that that's the case. So I think the, the first thing is to understand that if there's if there's something that people are prone to do, you're prone to do it too, and you need to be on guard against those things. A second thing we do as as humans is we tend to extrapolate the the present moment into the future indefinitely, right? We tend to think that whatever is happening now is going to continue, going to persist into into the future, and that's what leads us to chase performance. And, and you know, uh, what what's true in life is. Uh, what, what's true in life in many contexts is, you know, what you see is what you get. Like I met you in New York uh, three years ago. You were wry and funny and intelligent. You're all those things again today. There you go. Right. Stop um, it. I know. We, we emailed before, Frank. I'm sorry. I thought you were married. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I am married, but it won't stop me from flirting here. No. But, you know, it's like when you meet someone, you expect them, you expect them to be the same person uh, again. And, and typically they are. The truth about markets, though, is, is the inverse of that. The truth about markets is that th this too shall pass. So we see things from, from the professional world that, you know, fund managers who get fired tend to outperform the fund managers that replace them, right? We, we, we know that. And so we know that, that professionals 
you know, overlook their behavioral biases. We know that that professionals chase performance. We know that they do all these things. So you, again, you have to have a process that you believe in uh, more so than performance. A lot of these people, they are face to face, or at least they did pre-COVID with these fund managers. Is there a sort of series of questions you can ask them to understand their personality traits? You know, to, red flags that you would think, oh, if they might have said that, that's sketchy. I don't want to get involved there. I have uh, written about how I don't think that um, managers, uh, I don't think that fund selectors should should meet with fund managers. Um, all the research, uh, all the research on our ability to tell truth from falsehood when when face to face with someone shows that we suck at it like we're horrible at it and that we're also susceptible to things like flattery right even when we know that we're being flattered people still love flattery and so if you think about you know all these different behavioral phenomena that go into like a due diligence trip for a fund manager like you know, you you fly out to visit them, you stay in a hotel, there's all these sunk costs, right? So from the get go, you want it to go well, like you, you're already wanting to believe in them, because if you don't, you perceive that trip as sort of a waste wasted effort, then you know that they're going to be on their best behavior and flattering you and being kind to you and putting their best foot forward. You're susceptible to all of that. None of us are these like sort of micro expression detectives that we watch, you know, watch on TV. That stuff just isn't very robust. And we have a coin flip chance of, of telling truth from falsehood. So um, I think all the information you need is in the data. I don't think I think that things like shaking hands with a fund manager, looking in the, them in the eye, I think it has sort of old school, it, it makes us overconfident. It makes us more confident than it is helpful. When you look at the data on like um, uh, gambling, sports gambling, right? Uh, people who get three pieces of data are no better at selecting a winner than people who get 20 pieces of data. But the people who have 20 pieces of data are, are way more confident in their picks. So they take bigger bets. They, they don't manage their risk as well. I don't think a whole lot of good comes uh, out of uh, looking someone in the eye and shaking their hand and, and you know, seeing if you like the, the cut of their jib, right? But, the, but, but yet we, we think that it does and it has this sort of old school appeal that's hard to shake from people. So sorry, listeners. It's interesting. We've interviewed a guy before who, a fan selector, um, who is now, I don't think, in the job he was, so I'm not going to say who he is, um, but who had the same ap approach. And he cited, um, I'm going to try and get this right, Daryl Morey, who used to be the um, the general manager at the... Oh, the Houston Rockets. The Houston Rockets. Houston Rockets. There you go. I, I, look, once I was in American sports, I was on really dangerous ground. Uh, but he had the same thing. He wrote a big thing all about... Um, he didn't interview um, the players. He was just he just looked at the numbers. He said the, the interviews did nothing for him. But yeah, I guess the counter would be a lot of our readers would sort of say that they, they, you know, it's more than the cut of the jib. You can sort of tell who's really running things there. You can see if there's a succession plan. You can see, you know, how other analysts sort of respond to the managers. I don't know. I'm trying to present the counter view here, you know, to, to ward off to ward off the complaint letters. Um, Listen, do, do I, I, does, if that merit, does that have any merit or does it, it doesn't not, really hold water? I'm not trying. I'm not trying to kill your conference business, Alex. I hope you. 
<laughs> Here's what I think. If you're going to do that, because I have no, I have no misgivings about the fact that people are going to ignore this advice from me. So if, if you're going to do this, I would say just know, have a, have a process driven approach, like have, have a checklist, right? Because one of the things that we know is that certain things loom larger in our mind than, than other things. So, you, you know, you return back from this due diligence trip and let's say you saw three things you liked and three things you didn't like you know you're not going to weigh all those things equally and maybe the fact that you know you two like the same uh the same the, the same premier league team has a halo effect that's bigger than the fact that maybe some things were out of line and so i i just think you have to have a process and don't let don't let the relational niceties don't let the soft things overcome uh, overcome your process because everyone's still going to do this. No one's, no one's going to listen to me. I've been screaming into the abyss for years about this. <laughs> no, fair enough. Thank you. And Frank, I, on our, on our back and forth before you, you, you were going to ask, uh, Daniel, we've touched on it perhaps a bit already, but about the, the irrationality index. Oh yeah. So, you know, coming back, I think Alex pretty much asked you at the beginning, you know, are we at the, the least rational point in history? You know, what is, do you still run the index? What's it saying? I haven't done, I'm re I'm revamping. I haven't looked at it in years, honestly, but here's, here's what I will say about that though. Here's why I think we might be at the least rational point of, of, of the recent past. If we look at how people uh, make sense of something, there's something in psychology called primacy and recency, where the first thing that happens to us in a series of events looms large in our minds and the, the most recent thing in a series of events looms large. So if you look at people who are investing today, whether in their 20s, 20s 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, almost all of them now cut their teeth on some weird market. You know, was it the tech bubble or the, the mania preceding the tech bubble and the tech bubble? Was it the great financial crisis? Was it the corona crisis? Almost everyone investing today has an early experience of something wild and a recent experience of something wild. And so I think people have gotten a really volatile notion of, of what markets mean. And I mean, last year was like 1929 and 1999 in the same year. I mean, it was absolutely bonkers, right? It was like the Great Depression in this great bubble in the same 12 month span. And so I think investors are primed to make some of the worst decisions of all time right now. And, and the work that the work that we do as an industry, I think is more important than ever right now to just keep people from, from, you know, getting in their own way. I'm selling everything. <laughs> all in cash. Just, yeah, that's what I, I can take from this is, uh, to go full circle, we're all going to sell out of everything. We're going to sit in cash and we're going to miss out on another 10 years and we're going <laughs> to sue you. Um, I guess to, 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 to sort of round, round this off, um, we've asked you a lot about bad decisions and sort of where things go wrong. I think it's only fair to, uh, to let you brag a little bit as well. Um, so what, what would have been your best decisions other than, well, so you've, maybe you answered it around sort of having something that's automated, having something regular, but, but any other kind of, you know, high quality, good decisions that, that, that stand out. A few, a few, I think, you know, I think one of them is, is learning from my mistake, right? Like learning from my big mistake that I, that I started with, 
um, you know, there's there's psychological momentum when you make a mistake to to keep sort of patting yourself on the back for for that that decision that you made. You know, we each want to believe that we're you know both intelligent and virtuous. These are sort of the two things we want to believe we're good people and we want to believe that we're smart people. And so it's it's hard for us to look at a decision we made and go, eh, that was dumb. So you know, I was I was able to do that. It took a bit. But, you know, eventually I was able to get there. So that's one good decision I made. The second good decision I made was to maximize my income. Like, you know, I've done I've done a lot of things that have put me in a position to have, um, you know, income that, that I'm able to save. I think one of the things that we can do that we don't talk about much, we're always talking about squeezing, you know, half, a, you know, 50 basis points of alpha out of this asset class or another where it's much easier for you to just go, you know, whatever, start a side hustle, write a book, pick up a new skill and make a couple of extra bucks yourself and, and, and use those to, to try and get ahead. So I think I've done a good job of, of, of building a, a successful career that's allowed me to save and invest. And I think I, I realized my own stupidity fairly, fairly early on, which is uh, both both things have served me well. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So again, just to reiterate the lessons from this, move to cash drive for uber that's that's what i'm that's what i'm taking out from this um busking that's why i have the guitars yeah i doubt you go busking with a gold uh les paul i think people might look at you and go i'm not sure that you need the money i don't know from a marketing standpoint it's uh it's rich isn't it it's asking a lot Well, there you go. That was our conversation with Daniel Crosby. I should actually at this point say thank you very much, Daniel. As I, I think I, we did thank him, but we obviously didn't do it uh, while we were recording. So a little, little rude ending there. Uh, but, you know, it, w- it was lovely to hear from Daniel. I think a sort of a perfect guest to kick off this, this series. And for those of you who want to uh, hear more from him, he has his own podcast uh, with the enviably good name of Standard Deviations, uh, which, as you would expect also kind of focuses on uh, behavioral um, investing and uh, if you want to read more from him obviously he's written those books that Frank mentioned Uh, I think he has a blog as well on the Brinker Capital website so do check that out I really enjoyed that Frank and I I think I learned a lot obviously I've made some of the same mistakes as Daniel so um, maybe I haven't fixed them as quickly as he has Um, what did you take from it I like the notion that uh, that you've got to be devoid of emotion when making an investment decision that kind of shades of american psycho in it <laughs> maybe not maybe i'm not sure that, not. i don't know what that, if that's really what american psycho is about there's not a lot of financial decisions made it's more well you've got you kind of got to be a stone cold killer about these things and uh, and not and not dwell on it and not and not get too wrapped up i like the idea that if, if you're excited about anything it's a bad decision i might try and take that into other aspects of my life yeah Maybe. Uh, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I, obviously, as, as discussed, I've, I, I've sat in cash um, often and, 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 and for too long. I thought there were some interesting points there around, uh, you know, obviously fund managers are people too, just because they're, you know, very well remunerated and, and, and literally professional investors doesn't mean they're not, Im- doesn't mean they are rather immune to the, the same sort of foibles and faults as the rest of us. Um, I like the idea that... Um, sociability can improve improve your health but i guess on a more uh, serious note it was very interesting to hear the role that the daniel thinks loneliness might be playing in some of the investment behavior that we've been seeing at the moment and um you know 
I don't think that's been discussed enough. A lot of people have talked about, um, you know, stimulus checks, lack of sports being on as to why perhaps you're seeing more people, you know, pile into into trading, particularly in the US. But I, I don't think the, the loneliness element of it has, has has got the same attention. So I thought that was um, a very interesting point to take. Yeah, I don't think you were alone in that. Coming back to the cash point, I think there was a lot of people over the last 10 plus years in that bull market that went on the defensive, be that in cash or taking out protection. And that's a huge factor in why our performance rates of portfolio managers have been so low in terms of the percentages, because how could it possibly keep going on? And yet, if you'd have sat on your hands, you'd be sitting pretty. A point to note on that, though, is that if you were a US investor investing in US stock markets, you're happy as Larry, but there were other parts of the world that didn't just go straight up all the time with tech fueling their rallies. Wait, stocks don't just go up? <laughs> oh, according to Reddit, they do just go up and this is how you market time. Um, before we go, you know, we've, um, we've, we've given Daniel's work a bit of a plug and, and rightly so, but of course we should also um, do some shameless self-promotion as if we, as if this podcast alone isn't enough of that. Um, so for those of you listening to this in the United States who, who aren't familiar with, with CityWire and our output, um, do check out citywireusa.com uh, where we write for both professional fund selectors and registered investment advisors. And of course, you can catch Frank's work across almost all CityWire properties, whether in the US, uh, Europe and the UK. So you know, maybe, maybe just Google his name. Who knows? Anyway, I think that's a good point to end it. So thank you all very much um, for listening to this first ever episode of Mistakes Were Made. And it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.